You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. Don't stand uh, this evening. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 3 is where we're going to be. And uh, this, the, the message, the thought for the message tonight actually started as the, as the opposite. In some ways, I, uh, as I was preparing for this, I was going to focus on one verse, specifically verse number 5 in Nehemiah chapter 3. Um, and, and I've decided to wait um, on, on that verse or that thought till next week. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, uh, verse 5 is where I, w- I started out intending to preach, and it's this here, Nehemiah 3, 5. It says, And next unto them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. And that's a short phrase, but it's, it's important for us to get. Um, but, but as I started to uh, examine the rest of the passage uh, and think about the rest of the people... You know, that's the only example of people that weren't willing to put their neck to the work. That's the only example of people that, that had a negative thing said about them in this whole passage. But tonight, rather than getting to that, tonight I want to preach about everybody else. I want to talk about the trait that really drove everybody else, that I believe drove everyone else. And, uh, and so I want, we're not going to stand and read. I'm going to be pointing some things out as we go. But before we get started, as we continue in Nehemiah, I want to just be sure we don't miss the parallels here. That the walls around the city of Jerusalem that are broken down, they represent the spiritual condition of many lives and homes and churches in our country. The walls are broken down. We need a rebuild. We need, and I don't say this just to get an amen, um, but we need a revival. I mean, we need to rebuild the walls. We need uh, homes and lives and churches to be changed. But if we want to do, if we want God to do a great work among us or in our hearts and in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, then God's people have to be willing to commit to the work. In other words, God doesn't ever force a rebuild on anybody. He doesn't force revival on anybody. And that work most certainly includes prayer. And we ought to be ready and willing to pray, but it also includes service. And tonight's message is looking at people who were willing to do their part. And, and this is kind of a follow-up or a similar idea. A few weeks ago, I preached on the no names and how, how people, there are, there are probably people that did work on the wall, but their name did not get mentioned. And how they have to be content um, that God sees them. That God recognizes the work, that, God, that that work, that labor did not go unnoticed by the God of heaven. And we have to believe that to be true. Tonight's is a similar, a progression from that. And tonight's is about those willing to do their part, but willing to humble themselves to do their part. Because it takes that too. It takes those that are just willing to stand in their place among the many. Next Sunday night, we'll look at verse 5 and those that were not willing to do their part. But tonight, I, so I, when I started this, it really was just going to be one message. And then as I started writing the message, and I was at, I think, 15 pages of notes, I thought, you know what, out of mercy, 
I will split this into two messages. So be thankful that, that I'm giving you the, the, the first course tonight and we'll finish next week two sittings instead of one. You'll probably be thankful for it. But as, we go, as I was going through this and considering some things, I thought first the purpose is clear. What they're doing is clear. Uh, in other words, they were not unsure of what their responsibility was. As, as you go through here and you read chapter 3, the word repair occurs, occurs 27 times. The word rebuilt is found 13 times. Uh, that, so they have a clear purpose. They also have very clear planning. Don't miss the fact that there was a lot of thought and planning put into this. Uh, in other words, they didn't just wake up one morning and Nehemiah said, okay, all right, we need to rebuild the wall, go. No, it, it's very clearly stated that Nehemiah put the right people in the right places. There was a very clear plan. There was a very deliberate plan. If you look at phrases like next unto him repaired so-and-so or after him repaired so-and-so, those phrases are used 28 times in this chapter. That means that every person had a place along the wall. And it points to organization. You don't get that kind of organization unless somebody has thought through it. I, I don't know, that's at least in my experience, the default is not organized planning. The default is chaos. So some, very often it takes somebody to step in and have a clear plan. You also, so you've got a purpose that's clear. You've got planning that's, I, I was feeling it in an alliterating mood. You've got, the, uh, then you also have passion involved. Meaning that one thing I want to notice too that, that I think is a really interesting point is that Nehemiah saw the value in putting people on the wall to rebuild the part of the wall that was close to their homes. Look at verse 10. This is just an example. It says, And next unto them repaired Judea, the son of Haramath, even over against his house. And next unto him repaired Hattish, the son of Hashbaniah. But that phrase right there in the middle is even over against his house. So people were working next to their homes. Look down at verse 23. It says, And after him repaired Benjamin and Hashab, uh, or Hashab over against their house. Look at verse 28. It says, From above the horse gate repaired the priests, everyone over against his house. Verse 29. And after them repaired Zadok, the son of Emmer, over against his house. So do you see that it's not mentioned in every section but when Nehemiah could, he saw the value in putting people on the walls next to their homes. And I think that makes perfect sense. Uh, what part of the wall will I be most passionate about if I'm a dad and a husband? I am, will be passionate about the part of the wall that will be protecting my family someday. And, and I'm going to use that as a springboard for a message eventually because I think it's a great parallel and that we, are mo we, we need to build, not just for other people, we need to make sure that we're establishing a foundation at home. And, and, and husbands especially, and fathers especially, uh, don't neglect that you are called to make disciples. That you are called to build a godly and biblical foundation at home. And yet I believe that a lot of dads and, and husbands, they send their kids to the church to say, well, that's the church's job. But read Deuteronomy 6 if you're, if you're confused about that. Because we, are to, we are, have the responsibility to build disciples at home. And Nehemiah knew that the wall would be done well if men were thinking, wait, this part of the wall is going to protect my family someday. So they had passion for this. They also had a partnership. 
on top of all the reasons to jump in and be committed to the cause, you also have this phrase over and over and over, next to him, or, uh, which is used many times um, in this passage, and it literally means by their hand. Next to him literally means by their hand. In other words, they were close enough, if they wanted to, they were close enough to lock arms. Now, men, men don't usually do that, but if they, had, if they were to do that, they were close enough to do it. Next unto him means that if you wanted to, you could reach out. In other words, Nehemiah placed people along the wall uh, that, where they were working alongside each other. He saw the value in not putting one, one man over on the north side and another man on the south side, and they would never see each other for days. No, there's something about serving together that's extremely encouraging. When you can almost, I mean, uh, figurative, figuratively lock arms with somebody and say, no, we're in this together. That's why, and there's a, a trend, and this isn't in my notes, but I'm going to say it. So there, there's a trend these days that church is, is being uh, experienced now through a screen. I mean, one of the largest growing churches in, in Oklahoma is called LifeChurch.tv. And it's based on a screen in that um, this, you, the churches are spread all over the place. And, and there's the pastor, the main pastor is on the screen. And there are satellite campuses. Now listen, I like the idea of, of coordinating and having a, a plan together. But there's nothing like face-to-face interaction. There's nothing like locking arms with somebody. If I'm at home and I'm watching church on TV, that doesn't give me the same encouragement as sitting next to somebody in the pew that goes to work tomorrow just like I do and faces the same temptations that I do and and has the same struggles and yet has had the same kind of victories. There's something about that you can't get through a TV screen. These people had a partnership. They were close enough to lock arms and and I'm encouraged by that. If, so if you're one of the people on the job, you, you have a clear purpose. You have thoughtful planning from Nehemiah. You have plenty of motivation to get involved if you're working next to your house. And you're doing it alongside others in a partnership. I mean, there's a lot of good ingredients here. But I really do believe that, uh, that right up there next to the leader, Nehemiah, is the most important ingredient in this whole success story. And that is the people involved. The people, the attitude that they had, could, uh, they, their attitude contributed the most to this being a successful project. Because they were willing to jump in with both feet. And this is really, really starts to lead to where I want to go this evening. What I find encouraging is that these people were from all walks of life. These people were from all walks of life. We could look and see that in the very first verse, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the, who is he? Then Eliashib, verse 1 of chapter 3, who is he? What does he do? He's the high priest. Says that he rose up with his brethren, the what? The priests, and they built their part of the wall. And I, I would, you know, I think it's just very interesting. It mentioned in the very first verse, the first people to jump on board to do God's work were, go figure, those that were in the full-time ministry, the priests. And I'm thankful that the men directly involved in God's work we're right there with everybody else. I think it makes a statement. I really do. In other words, these men, they didn't have to get involved in the work. They could have just been in the temple. But they rose up and with the other priests, they built their part of the wall. You know who else was listed here that is interesting? Uh, if we're talking about all walks of life, there were rulers. 
that were involved. There were, there were governors involved. From what I can tell, there are eight rulers mentioned in this passage. Look, look at verse 9. I'll just give you a few if I can read their names. Verse 9, it says, And next unto them repaired Rephiah, the son of Hur, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's a big city. And this guy rules over half the part of the city. And he's right there on the wall with him. Look at verse 12. And next unto him repaired Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem, he and his daughters. So the, other, the ruler of the other half of Jerusalem, he's right there along with everybody else. Verse 14, but the Dungate repaired Malchiah, the son of Rechab, the, the ruler of part of Beth something. And I'll let you figure out how to say that one. But it, well, all, I was going to stop at ruler there, I mean, for, for my pride purposes. Look at verse 15. But the gate of the fountain repaired Shalon, the son of Kohoza, the ruler of the part of Mizpah. Look at verse 16. And after him repaired Nehemiah, not the Nehemiah of the book, that, of, that the book's named after, a different one. The son of Azbuk, the ruler of the half part of Bezer. Look at verse eight, uh, 17. After him repaired the Levites, Rehum, the son of Bani. Next unto him repaired Hashabiah, the ruler of the half part of Keilah. Look at verse 18. After him repaired their brethren, Bevi, the son of Hinnadad, the ruler of the half part of Keilah. Look at verse 19. And next to him repaired Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the ruler of Mizpah. Are you getting the idea? These aren't just commoners. These are men who held high positions in government, and they were right there with everybody else doing the work. You also have what, I was, what I'm labeling tonight as over. So you have priests, you have rulers, you also have some overachievers. The, you know, the, the, the kid in school that always gets the hundred, and so there's no curve, and so you just have to be stuck with the grade on the quiz that you get. The overachievers. Anybody in here, you were that student. Okay. All right. Yeah, you didn't have any friends in school. Okay. Overachievers. Some were described by how much they did or how much they did effectively. We're told in verse 8 that there was a man, um, and his name is, uh, let's see, verse 8. Next unto him repaired Uziel, the son of Haraeah of the goldsmith. Next unto him also repaired Hananiah, the son of one of the apothecaries. And they fortified Jerusalem under the broad wall. Now, that doesn't get said about everybody. He said they fortified the wall. Like, that's a big deal. Look down in verse 13. The valley gate repaired Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa. They built it, and, and then it talks about all the things they did. They set upon the doors, or sorry, they set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof, and a thousand cubits on the wall under the dung gate. A thousand cubits. That's a long ways. He was an overachiever. Look at verse 15. It says, but the gate of the foundation repaired Shalom, the son of Geholza, the ruler of the part of Mizpah. He built it and covered it and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof and the bars thereof, and the wall of the pool of Siloah by the king's garden, and unto the stairs that go down from the city of David. So you see, some of these guys, they did more than they really had to. There's extra description. Not only that, if you're really talking about overachievers, there were actually people mentioned in this chapter that did two sections of the wall. Look at chapter 4. There's a guy next unto them, repaired Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz. Now look down at verse 21. After him, repaired Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz. It's not the same piece of the wall. You've got a guy that's doing two pieces of the wall. Look at chapter, uh, verse 5 again. Uh, and here's another one. And next unto them, uh, the Tekoites repaired. Then down in verse 27. After them, the Tekoites repaired another piece of the wall. 
Look at, uh, you've got another one. You've got got multiple. I'm not going to read all of them. But I just want you to see that you have people from all walks of life that are getting involved in the work. You've got from priests to rulers. You've got high achievers, overachievers. You've got guys that were doing more than they even were asked to. These people were committed. Rich, poor, known, unknown. Last names didn't matter. They were checking those at the door. Bank accounts were not examined. They simply lined up next to each other and did the work. I mean, you talk about encouraging. They represent an attitude that we all need when it comes to God's work. And again, this is a follow-up to that last message about the no-names. And that is they were willing to be nobodies for God. They were willing to be nobodies for God. And I'm going to follow that up next week. With This is the attitude of the nobody. Next week is going to be the attitude of the noble. But tonight we're looking at the attitude of the nobody. There, a lot of these people were from respectable backgrounds, folks. They were not, they're, they're rulers and priests. They're a higher class. The overachievers, they obviously were able, high capacity people. They were able to get a lot done. The, many of these people were descendants of those priests and leaders that had returned. And, and we're not going to get into the timeline. We talked about it at the beginning. But 90 years before this, about 90 years, some guys returned from Persia to start rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the wall. Men like, and you'll recognize the names out of the book of Ezra, men like Zerubbabel, men like Jeshua the priest in that book of Ezra, prominent men in the history of Israel. And you, some of these men working on the wall, their grandfathers were legends. Their grandfathers were well known. Their grandfathers were, oh, that's, that's Zerubbabel's grandson right there. That's Jeshua's uh, great-grandson right there walking. You see, and that's him. Yeah, his grandson or his grandfather was, was a great man that helped bring Israel back to prominence 90 years ago. The temple they built, it may not have been as glorious as Solomon's, but it's not every day that you see people with that capacity. People that can rebuild a temple, people that can rebuild walls, somebody that would be willing. Uh, they led thousands of Jews back from Persia way back then. Uh, they led thousands of people back from the Middle East in Persia to Israel and set a city back up. That's a big deal. The men that Nehemiah was calling to arise and build, they had well-known names and they had important jobs. But here's the thought that we're going to get to tonight. Their position and standing did not prevent them from getting involved in the work. See, the priests, when Nehemiah came and said, listen, we're going to rebuild the, the walls to protect the city, the priests didn't say, hey, I'm, I'm too, I've actually I've got too much going on in the temple. I help people spiritually. I'm not going to be able to do that. I bring offerings. I bring sacrifices to God on a daily basis. I lead people in worship. And so this is not really part of my job description. You're going to have to find somebody else. The rulers, they didn't show up and say, hey, listen, I'm an elected official, and therefore I do no work. No, just kidding. They're, I'm an elected official. I, I work for the city, so I have to hold the shovel up, you know. I'm an elected official. I govern over thousands of people all across this countryside. I don't have to lift a hammer or find somebody else to get their hands dirty. There was nobody saying that. No one said, sorry, my, do you know who my grandpa was? My grandpa was Zerubbabel. He led the people back. He rebuilt the temple. I mean, these men, and lest I forget, some of their daughters too, they were willing to do the dirty work in spite of their social standing. 
See, they didn't view themselves as being above the work. And there's one fact here, or one point that makes this possible, that I really believe is the key to us being willing to accept the role that God has for us to play in his work. And it's found back in chapter 2, actually. See, let's look back there and look at verse 17 of chapter 2. This is how Nehemiah got them all on the same page. When he said, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Now, he was not appealing just to their personal pride. He was appealing uh, to the fact that they serve God and God's name was being affected by the condition of the walls of Jerusalem. He made it about something bigger than them. Look at verse 18 at the beginning. It says, Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me. Here's Nehemiah. He's done some amazing things already. He's come all the way across um, from Persia, and he's done some incredible things and made that long trip and had the army with him, and he's gotten there, and he's made a plan, but he's giving God the credit for the position that they were in. He acknowledges, that, listen, this is not about me. This is about God's good hand upon me. It is God that has brought me to this place. It is God that has brought us to this point. Look down in verse 20. Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. And it's pretty interesting. Nehemiah is not appealing to their personal pride. He's not saying, listen, priests and rulers, uh, you can sit this out. We'll get the commoners to lift the hammers. We'll get the commoners on the wall. You just tell us what to do. No, he, what he's doing is he's putting everybody in the same position. Everybody's in the same boat. Everybody's on equal footing here. And notice their response when he pleased to them by, by using God's name and the reproach on God's name as a motivation. You know what they said? Verse 18, after they heard all this, they said what? Let us rise up and build. And, and you may not see the significance yet. I hope that I can convey it. Here it is. You see, they saw the work of God as something above them. They saw the work of God as something bigger than them. They didn't say, okay, we'll stoop down to do God's work. What did they say? Let us what? Rise up and build. Now, the shepherds and the men of the plain, I, they... They saw God's work as being above them, but we can understand that. They're, they're, they don't have good, high standing. They're not socially uh, respected necessarily. But the priests, I mean, they were God's chosen. And the rulers, they were important. They were governors. They, but they caught a glimpse of the fact, and here's where we're going to get down to it. They caught a glimpse of the fact that God's work is something they had to rise to. Even though they were rulers... Even though they were priests, even though their work was important, they, when they saw God's work and they understood who God was, they said, but that's way above me. I have to rise to that level. See, a person with the right perspective of God will have the humility as a nobody to do whatever is asked of them in God's work. These people understood God's role in their position. I get excited about this. Listen, the restoration of Israel from exile way back when, it was all God's doing. They didn't make this happen. He didn't have to bring them back. 
but he had a covenant and he did. God was the one who had moved them in the, had moved in the hearts of people like the Persian emperors to say, okay, yes, we'll allow you to go back. God had raised up prophets to convince the people that their hearts needed to get right with God and they needed to repent of their sin and return to the Lord. God had raised up the priests and the builders that could handle this task. God had protected them on their way from Persia through hundreds of miles of, of, of the, in, the enemy lands. It was God who prompted Ezra and it was God who prompted Nehemiah to return and do the work. And it could only be God that could bring back a nation that many thought was dead in the water and restore the temple and restore the sacrifices and restore the law as a way of life. Only God can do that. And when you have the right perspective of God and that, that everything that we have, we owe to him, it's not hard to be humble about the work because without God, they were just nobodies. See, your approach to serving God reflects and starts with your view of God. God is our creator. God is our redeemer. God is our provider. He's our sustainer. He's merciful to us every day. He's the one that brought us out of sin and to himself. All we had to do was place our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. He did all the work. God is our sustainer every day. God is the one who forgives us of our sin. It is only because of God's mercies every day that we're not consumed. It is only because of God's hand upon us that we even breathe and are still alive every day. He holds everything together. The only reason we have anything good is because we have a good God. That's it. And he has our best in mind. And instead of working, listen... He could be, he's this big of a God. He could just accomplish his will and not even ever include us. He could work around us. But a God as big as he is chooses to work in us and through us. That's the, that's the proper view of God. See, when you have the right view of God, then you will then have the right view of yourself because compared to God, we're just nobodies. All of us. And humility is the result of viewing God accurately and therefore seeing yourself clearly. God is high. We are low. God is great. We are not. God is holy. We're sinners. And if God is up and we are down, then his work, no matter how small it is, no matter how unglamorous, how great, how small, whatever, whatever the task is in God's work, because of how much greater he is than me, then anything that he asks me to do is above me. Anything that I get to do for God is something I have to rise to do. Any task, meaning when you have the perspective of God right, anything you can do for God, folks, Get this, if you have the right perspective of God, then you view anything you get to do for God as a privilege. We don't deserve to get involved in God's work. We're below God's work. I mean, his work is above us. We have to arise to build. We must rise to serve. That's how low we are. And it is because the people understood that truth in Nehemiah that their response to God's work was, well, let's rise and build. God's work is above me. I am lowly. I have to rise just to serve him. And what we have in Nehemiah 3 is an example of people that don't see themselves as being above the work. 
And that's the attitude of the nobody. That anything I get to do for God is above what I deserve to do for God. Anything I get to do for God is a privilege and not a right. It is a privilege and I'm not entitled to it. These are rulers, these are priests, these are leaders. But those are terms, listen, those are terms that only apply when you're comparing yourself to other people. See, yes, in other people's eyes, this man Eliashub, yes, he was a priest. But compared to God... He's a nobody. Yeah, and compared to everybody else, these guys that were governors over their part of the, of the country, yes, they look pretty important, but compared to God, they're nobody. You know, compared to other people, leaves us saying things like this, I am talented. Well, compared to them, I'm talented. Compared to that person, I am skilled. Compared to that person, I am articulate. Compared to them, I'm a good teacher. Compared to them, no offense, Brother Blake, uh, compared to Brother Blake, I'm a good singer. That's, that's what we do. I just happened to, I didn't know anybody was sitting that far over. And I pointed to Brother Blake and said, compared to him, I'm a good singer. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't want to say it. Compared to others, we say things like, you know, when people, when I talk, people listen. When we compare ourselves to other people, we say things like, well, you know, I'm a fourth generation Christian. Or my dad was a pastor and my grandpa was a pastor. In essence, here's the tendency. We have a tendency to say, I'm a spiritual ruler, priest, and leader. When we compare ourselves to other people. You know, we, we have a tendency when we compare ourselves to other people to say, well, I can build two sections of the wall. I'm a high-capacity person. I'm a high-capacity kind of guy. Loads of physical resources. I am somebody. And it's amazing what we latch on to and are proud about. But notice in that exercise that everything mentioned came from a comparison to other people. And here's the issue. We need to stop finding our identity in human comparisons. See, we fall into this trap of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 12, where it says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number... Or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. Here it is. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. And yet we do it all the time. And I believe that our, we think that our spiritual lives are, is not necessarily a comparison between us and God, but it's a comparison to other people. Well, but consider how I'm doing compared to them. Consider where I'm at compared to that person. And we, that gives us a faulty perspective when we embrace this identity that says, I will compare myself to other people. See, the truth is, your most accurate identity is found when you compare yourself to God. Because when you compare yourself to God and you see him for who he is, you're not left saying, look how good I am, I'm a spiritual leader. Look how good I am, I'm a ruler, I'm a priest, look how much of the wall I can build. No, when you have a proper perspective of God, you don't look at yourself as being somebody, you look at yourself as being a nobody. And we're all there, folks. Now, when you stop comparing yourself to others and you see yourself compared to God, you find yourself saying, I'm nothing, I'm not, I have no talent, I have no ability, I have no skill. Like Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah chapter 6, what did he say when he, saw, when he saw God? He said, woe unto me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. 
I re- we preached this morning out of the life of Jacob. And when he saw that vision, Jacob's ladder, as it's called, and he said the Lord saw the Lord sitting on top of it, and God spoke to him when he woke up. Was he saying, boy, I'm somebody. God spoke to me. No, what does it say? He was afraid. So when you consider God, all you can say is, I have no ability except what he's given me. When you compare yourself to God, all you can say is, I can't even speak except that he gives me words. When you compare yourself to God, you say, I couldn't even sing except that he enables me. I can't even breathe except that he keeps my body working, my heart pumping and my lungs going. I certainly could never be in heaven except that God sent his son to die in my place on the cross. It's only due to his daily renewed mercies that he doesn't wipe me out. See, folks, when our perspective begins with God, it creates in us a spirit of humility. And we no longer see ourselves as something. We see ourselves as nobodies. Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. Listen, the only reasonable service in response to God's mercy when we compare ourselves to God is a spirit of humility that he brought us out and he delivered us and he gives us breath and life and he is the only reason I have anything good. So I can't look at myself as somebody because in comparison to God, I'm nobody. James 1 wrote, James wrote in chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down. It cometh down. From the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The gifts that God sends to us, he doesn't send across. He doesn't send up. If he gives us a gift, he has to look way down low. That's how much higher he is than us. We are who we are because God is who he is. And as Jesus said, without me, ye can do nothing. When I consider how far down God has to come to just work in my life anything I can do for him is something I have to rise to do I'm not I'm just a nobody who gets to do something for God folks like it or not and this may not be popular I know this isn't the kind of thing they teach if I went to a public school and taught this they wouldn't they wouldn't let me finish the uh, the assembly because you don't walk in and say you're nobodies and yet that's really who we are compared to God. And therefore, our perspective ought to be, hey, anything I get to do for God is better than I could ever deserve. Because of who he is, what he's done, there's nothing below me when it comes to serving God. And listen, I'm thankful I see this all the time. This morning, I, I got a call from, or a text from, Brother Troy, I don't, think, I don't think the Swifts are here tonight. I got a text from Brother Troy at 7-something this morning. And he said, um, are you at the church? I left my keys, and I need to get in the church. Yeah, because every Sunday morning, uh, the Swifts show up with a bunch of donuts that I think feeds half the bus kids in Sioux Falls. Because when they come in, <laughs> they run right to the table. But you know why they do it? Because they love some of our seasoned saints. And they buy these big trays of donuts. They go to hy V every week and they, they make coffee and they, I mean, all this stuff. It's a spread. And sometimes not very many come out. But I, as I was sitting there this morning as he texted me and said, I, I would need, I need to get in. I don't have my key. 
And at about 7.45, he stopped by the house and got the key from me. I, I chose to wait and come in a little later this morning. And as he drove off, I was thinking, you know, Troy Swift owns his own business. And Troy Swift, I mean, you go out in the foyer out there and you see all the lights, uh, those LED lights installed. He donated all that to the church. I mean, he, just, he had a guy, one of his guys up here. I mean, he's paying him. And he has a guy up here this week fixing some lights in the, foyer, in the hallway out there. And I was thinking in my mind, and I, I'm kind of glad, maybe glad they're not here because I know they wouldn't want this attention, but Brother Troy owns a business and he does really well. And he's got a lot of guys under him that he just sends to go do work at, you know, this job, you do this job. And yet on Sunday mornings, him and his wife get up really early and they go buy donuts. And nobody, they, nobody tells them to do it. Nobody makes them do it. They do it because they love people. And it struck me this morning that Brother Troy Swift, he may have a successful electric business, but he sees himself as a nobody when it comes to serving God. Because in his mind, he's got all this energy and all these resources and all these things, and he could do a lot for the Lord, and he can do a lot, he does a lot for Eastside Baptist. But in his mind, he's no better than the folks out there who can't really get around very much anymore. Because he has a mindset that he's a nobody and not a somebody. Even though, I mean, socially speaking or business-wise, he's a ruler. He's a leader. That's the attitude and mentality we need when it comes to serving God. I can't tell you what it does in my heart, how it does my heart good. And Brother Juan's not in here either. I'm just talking about everybody because they're not here. But he's out in the foyer. Brother Juan and many others on Sunday mornings, I can't tell you what it does for me to see Sam Flute waiting out here and, and to see somebody just out of the goodness of their heart go over there and pick up a phone and call the number and, and arrange for him to get a ride to get home. It's because people view themselves as nobodies, not somebodies. I, I think about Brother Phil Everett, and, and he's in here, so thankfully you win. And, and, you know, there are a lot of weeks where Brother Phil is driving around the countryside helping churches do projects and fixing roofs, and he wants to be a blessing. You know why? I mean, he owns a business, but he doesn't see himself as a somebody. He sees himself as, himself as a nobody because compared to God, that's all we are. Uh, people giving rights to other people. We have people in our church that give anonymously to families in need and just out of the goodness of their heart. See, when, you're, when you compare yourself to God, you see yourself as a nobody, and it changes the way you serve. It changes the way you see yourself. See, if you're a nobody, there's nowhere to look but up. And that means that anything you get to do for God means you get to rise to do it. That means if a toilet is clogged or needs to get clean, and I woke some people up, it's better than we deserve. We have to rise. When it comes to cleaning God's toilets, we have to rise to do it. It's above us. When it comes to shoveling snow, which we walked in for a choir and Miss Kath is out there. Me and Brother Chad and I were like, um, okay, thanks. Well, we walked right past her. No, we said, you, you can't keep doing that. Where's Carter? And Carter went out. I think Carter went out and did it at half speed compared to Miss Kath. But still, he got it done. But see, when, when you're a nobody, shoveling snow, well, that's better than I ever deserved. There's no greater privilege. You work in the nursery and you change diapers and you 
you watch kids and you're, I mean, you're dealing with kids in the nursery. Listen, when you're serving God because you're a nobody, there's no higher calling. It's time to erase we have to from our Christian dictionary and replace it with what? We get to. I get to go to church this morning. I get to serve in the choir. I get to go invite people to church. I get to go to junior church and teach a lesson. I get to go to Sunday school and have a class of kids. I mean, I don't even know if what I'm saying makes sense, but they all love me no matter what. Because I bring them candy. But still, they love me. I mean, I, I, get to, I get to do stuff for God. Anything that I get to do for God is above what I deserve to do for God. I get to. Get to go to church again. Get to park at the end of the parking lot so guests can have the close-up spots. Now I'm stepping on toes. I get to dress up for church because God deserves it. He deserves my best. I get to pick up that piece of trash on the floor because it's God's house and he deserves for it to be clean. I get to be involved in outreach because I'm glad somebody was involved and told me. Listen, when we see ourselves accurately that we're nobodies without God, then we will find pleasure in any task, no matter how inconvenient, no matter how undesirable, no matter how unglamorous, any job I get to do for God is more than I could ever deserve. I have to raise up, rise up just to do it. It's above me and therefore I'm all in. See, maybe it's time that we ask the Lord to help us to see him in ourselves clearly. To have a humble spirit toward the work, to stop comparing ourselves with others and be willing to rise up and serve in whatever capacity we're asked, even if it's not what we desire, whatever area there's a need, to do whatever ministry, no matter how small, because we're not above it. Especially when you consider that our Savior, who is above it all, came down to serve us. Humility in God's work is the only reasonable response when we view ourselves compared to God. So how humble have you been toward God's work? Do, do you deal with others like you're a nobody, just privileged to get to do anything? Or is there a sense of, of entitlement creep? How willing are you to do whatever is asked or needed of you? How excited are you to get to serve in whatever capacity? How faithful are you to your ministry? How committed are you to do your part in rebuilding things that have been broken down? And if any of those are wavering, maybe you've lost sight of just who you are compared to God. It starts with seeing God for who he is. He's high and holy and deserving. And in turn, you see yourself for who you are, lowly, a nobody, a sinner. And therefore, any task is a privilege. We rise up to build because we're nobodies. And I believe if we'll see ourselves accurately compared to God, there will be no lengths we won't go for God. And we'll see complete surrender among his people. And when God's people sell out in that way, I believe that's when you see revival. That's when you see walls that are really rebuilt. And it all starts with how we view God.
how we view ourselves. And that we have the mindset that everything I get to do for God is a privilege. It's above me. I have to rise up to build. Let's every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's stand together. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.